Welcome to the Teabag Chinwag, where we talk tea and talk movies. My name is Bernard Pucher, and I'm a writer and director and producer. And joining me are Ariana Steigman, a dedicated history and literary nerd, and Ed Perrier, illustrator and animator and tea enthusiast. But our special guest today is a tea expert, is Jane Pettigrew. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Just to give some highlights on Jane, she is the course director of the UK Tea Academy and author of 17 books and a contributing editor to Tea Time magazine. Thank you very much, Jane, for joining us. Tell us a little bit more about what you do. Uh, well, for about 38 years now, I've been working in tea from all different angles, teaching tea, working in tea shops, tea companies, etc., uh, consulting in uh, hotels, tea rooms around the world, and just really writing, talking, teaching everything about tea. Mm. Awesome, awesome. That's really good. I mean, that's proper expertise. I mean, yeah. uh, when we first sort of conceived of the idea, this is a, a, an evolution of one of Ed's ideas. Actually, tell us a little bit about what you initially were going to do before it became the tea bag chinwag. Uh, Okay, so the original idea uh, was just me and my friend who drank tea every day, but the classic builder's tea, essentially. Um, and we ranged from, like, having cups to, like, the big uh, Sports Directs mugs just <laughs> full of tea. Um, but the idea was essentially to review all the teas you could buy just readily available, not, like, anything too special. So it was, like, PG Tips and Tetley's and... Uh, all the classics, basically, Yorkshire, Yorkshire Gold. And then we tried to, like, go to, like, um, some of the supermarkets' own brand ones uh, just to, like, see, I don't know, just compare it all. Because I don't think, like, anyone's ever really done them, that. Right? Yeah, yeah, we ranked the whole thing. And I don't think anyone's really ever done that. We um, have in the industry. Yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you have. Um, just to see, like, if, like, Sainsbury's own brand is way better than Yorkshire, even though it's, like three quid cheaper. Yeah, but like a consumer um, perspective type Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Which so was, we did. We, we reviewed all of them. Which was your favourite? And as scientifically as possible. Can we say? Can we say uh, as a favourite? Yeah, yeah, I can. I can. <laughs> uh, we, what we really liked was the... Um, uh, it's like... It was like yellow label M&S. Huh. Um, M&S. That was quite nice, actually. That'd be good. Uh, <laughs> but like, to be honest with you, a lot of them tasted very similar. Even like M&S gold brand mm-hmm. that was like five quid more than anything else. It tastes like PG tips. Right. Like, it honestly just didn't oh, make much. We'll get some insight here. There is, there was difference, and we had to like we went from zero to ten scale, and then we realised that that was that we couldn't really do that because they were all too similar. Wow, so then we did so it from zero to a hundred, and then we did like oh yeah, so PG tips is fifty six, and yes, yeah. but yeah, anyway. Well, give, I, it, give yeah. us some insight. Well, here. companies like the big supermarkets, they actually they don't handle tea; they just sell it. Right. So different companies blend the teas for them. Um, and everybody has an idea what an English breakfast type tea, builder's yeah. tea as they call it, should offer the, the drinker, the consumer. So quite strong and not much in the way of subtlety, mm. um, stands up to milk, maybe mm. sugar. I think sugar less these days. So, you know, there's never going to be that much variety in a okay. bog standard yeah. everyday tea bag. <laughs> it's only when you go outside of that whole market sector and you start going for more speciality teas, mm. which sounds a little bit off, off-putting, but it's, it's basically the same thing, mm. but made in a different way, processed yeah. in a different way yeah. to keep the flavours, the subtlety, yeah. the, you know, the layers of interest. So. Mm. so clearly what we're going to do here is a bit more intricate and a little bit more detailed. And the whole point is, is to explore teas that we wouldn't necessarily normally drink and to learn more about it. And this, in this case, what we're going to do is we're going to approach it from a, from a cinematic perspective. We watch a movie... 
the requirement is that the movie has to have at least one scene where a cup of tea is being drunk by a character, and then we consume that tea. And then not just talk about the tea, but also talk about the movie while we have that cup of tea. And I think that is a nice, fun, interesting way to approach it and gives us a little bit of insight as to the things that the film actually talks about. So what's the first movie that we were gonna do? We actually, uh, Ariane and I actually talked about, you know what we haven't seen in a while? Lawrence of Arabia. And I don't think, have you actually watched Lawrence of Arabia before this? Yes, but eons ago. Exactly. So you've not really? watched it at all? No. Okay, and I mean, have it's you... It's four <coughs> hours of your life, yeah, yeah, so yeah, that's a, yeah. an undertaking. Um, have you, have homework. You... <laughs> Proper homework. Yes. Yeah. Jane, have you seen Lawrence of Arabia I've before? seen it twice before, and the, the second time I was actually on a tea um, garden, a tea estate, up in the high hills of Sri Lanka, oh, in wow. Ceylon. Wow. So I was actually watching it with the big boss of one of the biggest Sri Lankan tea companies, Meryl Fernando. And I think Lawrence was one of his heroes. Right. Oh. So okay, it makes it a was whole fascinating lesson. being up there. It's so beautiful. And then to go from lush green tea fields mm -hmm. to the Arab area, the dusty desert, that was just such an interesting a juxtaposition of experience. So how long ago was this? Uh, it's probably about eight or nine years. All right, so it's been a while for you as well. Yeah, um, it has. Yeah, because I haven't seen it since film school, right? And in film right. school, of course, you're very impressionable. So the, the, anything that looks amazing, feels amazing, of course, really gets to you. And it's just, it's surprising. The film school for me was 2005, 2006, okay. right? So a lot has changed since then, and I actually remembered the film quite differently from yeah. what uh, from, from from watching it now to what it was then. And uh, so let's get into the movie a little bit. So um, the movie is basically uh, came out in 1962. Uh, it's directed by David Lean, um, starring Laurence Olivier, and is about uh, 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 is based yeah. on the true story. What starring Peter O'Toole? Star starring Peter O'Toole. What is it, Laurence Olivier? Olivier. That means it's because I looked at that, that, that should have mistake. been Lawrence. Yeah. Fair enough it's, mistake. So, so, no, it is, no, I, I misspoke. You're totally friend, right. She calls him Lawrence of Olivier. Just <laughs> a paraphrase. <laughs> yes, you're totally right. I misspoke there. It, it stars Peter O'Toole. It should have been Lawrence Olivier. In fact, Lawrence Olivier was supposed to be in this movie. Was but it? Yeah, yeah. He was supposed to. He was supposed to play um, uh, Alec Guinness's role. Um, Did he fail the no, no, no. He, he ended up. He, I don't know if he, I, I know he bailed uh, on the movie at some point. I don't know why exactly. That uh, that's not something I know. Because he, he didn't get the lead. No, no, no. I don't think that's it. Uh, but the uh, but in short, for anybody who's not seen Lawrence of uh, Lawrence of Arabia yet, um, Lawrence of Olivia. I was about to say. It. Uh, yeah, you were. Uh, close. Yeah, yeah um, I was about to say. It. Thank you very much. Um, uh, for those who haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia, it's based on the true story of T. E. Lawrence and his role in the Arab rebellion against the Turks on the Arab Peninsula. Um, and he was a hugely, hugely important figure in that uh, in that period, but also um, quite the uh, studied man of Arab culture. You know and uh, um, an archaeologist. It was probably uh, actually quite the uh, the uh, not not every man. What do you call it? The uh, Renaissance, Renaissance man. man. That's what I was like. Right, Renaissance man. Um, and actually, I watched this great uh, review of this film, which described T. E. Lawrence as sort of the real life Indiana Jones. You know, mm -hmm. so as an archaeologist, but a bit of an action hero. You know, um, that kind of thing. So I think Indiana uh, that, Jones, if he was a thespian, <coughs> that's yeah, but, no, but he's <laughs> but Indiana Jones is an an archaeologist um, and a, a well versed man, but maybe not quite. Um, the the writer that um, that T. Lawrence was because T. Lawrence um, his book which is what the movie is based on the Seven Pillars of Wisdom is generally heralded as an incredible novel. Um, it's said and, to be one of the best literary works in the English language. And and I think that in itself is worth uh, just exploring. Even if you mm -hmm. haven't seen the movie, if you're more into books, 
read that book. It, the writing in yeah, it is spectacular yeah, and I think is worth exploring. So let's get into the movie. Take it with a grain of salt. I mean, this is a man writing about himself and his exploits. And he said to have been a bit of an egotist. A little bit. A little bit. Yes. Well, you know, uh, I mean, so it, it's, it's we will get into the flaws of It's very, very beautiful, definitely worth reading. Some historical truth in it, quite a bit of self-aggrandizing. So, well, it's called Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what I mean, it, it as it clearly, you yeah. know, yeah, he, he gets to describe that about himself. But regardless of that, regardless of the flaws of T. Lawrence himself, uh, the film itself uh, is what we're here to talk about, and of course, the culture that it explores. So let's get into. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia a little, uh, a little bit. So here we have him, uh, Peter O'Toole. Um, what was the, what was the, you mentioned the quote earlier about Peter O'Toole. Yes, uh, Noel Coward, um, who of course would know Peter O'Toole, I'm sure. He actually said to him, if you'd been any prettier, this would have been Florence of Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> no, he is, he he is, is quite he's pretty. He's a yeah. very, very stunning man and his yeah. blue eyes oh, pop incredible. like crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're really, really good. And it's so. this kind of half smile, half serious look mm. so often yeah, you get from him. Facially, he's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Playful, the way he... Playful yet serious. Yes, yeah. and teasing. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah quite yeah. naughty. Well, well, let's explore... Uh, let's explore um, the character of T. Lawrence and uh, um, uh, Peter O'Toole's performance uh, just a little bit. So let's play a clip um, of that film real quick. Michael George Hartley, this is a nasty, dark little room. That's right. We are not happy in it. I am. It's better than a nasty, dark little trench. And you're a big, noble fellow. That's right. Ah, here is William Potter with my newspaper. Hey, Atos. Thanks. Would you care for one of Corporal Hartley's cigarettes? Tom. Is it there? Of course. Headlines. But I'll bet it isn't mentioned in the Times. Bedouin tribes attack Turkish stronghold. And I bet that no one in this whole headquarters even knows it happened. Who would care if he did? Allow me to ignite your cigarette. Sir? Mr. Lawrence? Yes? Flimsy, sir. Thank you. You do that once too often. It's only flesh and blood. Michael George Hartley, you're a philosopher. And you're balmy. It damn well hurts. Certainly it hurts. Well, what's the trick then? The trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. No, it's wetting your fingers with some spit. Then <laughs> <laughs> it does it. So, um, obviously now we've uh, got a bit of an introduction. This is the introduction of T.E. Lawrence in the film. And we, we, we do have a sequence beforehand with uh, the motorcycle crash. By the way, spoilers. Anybody who hasn't seen the movie... We're going to get into spoilers here, but it's the yeah. opening of the movie. I don't think that's a spoiler. Um, yeah. But the opening of the movie is basically him going on a, on a joyride and then crashing and dying and then the sort of funeral and what people say about him afterwards. Um, and I, in the context of the film, I'm not quite sure why that scene is there. I'm not sure we needed it, but I think 
in the um, uh, I think it was kind of necessary just to show how important this man was before we see the life of him. Think, Otherwise, it's not just the, it was important and showed how, what a controversial character he was. Right. Because the movie then displays why it was controversial, why some people loved him, some people thought he was you know this completely egomaniac or just crazy. It showed so it was a journalist talking to different people coming out of the funeral. Just wanting a few words, and some people said he was a hero, national treasure. Some people said he was a you know a playboy and a, and a egomaniac. So it's but he was, was controversial. There was also quite a lot of um, you got the sense that people didn't really want to go into talking about him. They would That's say true. yes, I knew him, but that was it. Mm. So maybe he'd upset them, or maybe they thought he was too controversial. Yeah. Uh, he was certainly very different from most other he soldiers. He was also a, a, an intelligence agent, so maybe the things he couldn't talk about, he yeah. shouldn't talk yeah, about, even maybe. after the fact. Was this the interpretation of the director, or was it actually what people said about him? Well, he, he was. Well, well, put it this way: the historical. One, well, one thing missing from the no, one thing from, that's missing from the movie, which I think regrettably so, and I wonder if an earlier draft of the script maybe had it in there, and then they got rid of it because it was already four hours long. <laughs> um, I think the, there's a part to his story where he returns to the United Kingdom um, and basically is awarded. Um, uh, uh, which was it? The 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 uh, order of Bath. Yeah, yeah but ba basically uh, for his contribution to the yeah. Arab rebellion and to the thing, he and was he, nominated for MBE. Exactly, gone. and and the point is, he was supposed to get you know um, I don't know if he was supposed of to be course. knighted or something like that, but he ended up refusing that yeah. because of his protest against what the British did to the Arabs mm. afterwards. You know, by basically instead of giving them their freedom and giving them their um, self their, their, their self rule, they decided to split it up between the French and the English. And just kept it, you know. And he was in very, very much yeah, um, in protest of that. Yeah, exactly. He was, he was, he very, very much in protest of this, and wanted them to have self-rule. And so he rejected any award given to him, awarded to him for his successes. By King and, John the Fifth, and, and that, that was not heard of. Exactly. By the king was going to give him award, and he said no, you know. And yeah. that, and that is a very, very controversial thing to do, especially in the early twentieth century still. Um, and so. This was. This is why he's one of the people that just, you know, um, causes a mixture of opinion. And I think the film very, very successfully doesn't give you a black and white portrait of the film uh, of the character. You know, um, which is a very, very uh, compelling take to have on this. It could have been much more Ben Hurish, uh, mm -hmm. where you just have this, you know, savior character. You know, um, uh, or you you have. You have a more, or if you take Braveheart, for example, which is a much more recent film, but the, the character is not necessarily black and white, but it's very linear. He's all good, and he struggles, and he goes on his That's tirade, true, yeah. to the blah, blah, and he is not that. You know what I mean? Yeah. He, he gets sort of introduced as that, but, you know, he his position gets more complex, but he does he have a savior quality about himself where he thinks there's this particular line in it where he says... They desire freedom, and I'm going to give it to them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So clearly, he has a bit of a savior complex in that. In fact, who's going to walk on water with me is something he says to the others, yeah, and they yeah, go, yeah. Uh, "I don't think so." Yeah, yeah. what Everyone's do you? Lunch. Who do you think you are? You know what I mean? And I think that's he needed to be humbled uh, and stuff like that, and eventually does. But so, yeah. so maybe that first scene outside the uh, after the funeral outside St Paul's Cathedral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
um, maybe it was sort of saying, okay, these guys are not going to say much about him. Let's leave it up to the viewer mm-hmm. to make up their own mind about Lawrence when you get to the end I of the like film. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I mean, but it's true. also, I mean, it's also, it it, it, it it borrows a bit of a device from Citizen Kane, which mm-hmm. frames it um, in this kind of journalistic mm-hmm. enterprise to get different perspectives yeah. on the, on yeah. the same map. Whereas this film doesn't really um, go down that route. It just takes a much more objective stance on it. But it borrows the idea of, well, let's see what people think about yeah. it first, and then we find that. And I suppose yeah. also because his life in the, in the desert with the Arabs was what he's mostly known for, but it doesn't tell you anything about mm-hmm. his previous achievements. It no. doesn't mention his archaeology or anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's quite an isolated, it's long, but it's a quite isolated sector, section of his life, isn't it? Well, it's also, yeah. I mean, it is what made him famous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, his, archaeolo- mm-hmm. his archaeological endeavours, while you yeah. know, important, you know, were not important, you yeah. know what I mean, no, to the public. They, they that would made him the perfect man in the perfect place. Absolutely. Yeah. Arabic, but, but, he read yeah. and wrote in Arabic, he was respected and accepted by them. Them. He was yeah. a perfect go-between. But the film yeah. only became got made because of the article written by the American journalist, which yep. made him a big name. Yes, and yes. that's what made yeah. the story. And of yeah, course, the book was important, yeah. but the film got made because of that article in, in, sure. in the US. And mm. that yep. made the story. That was the thing, you know. And I think cool. that is. Uh, I think that is really sort of. He's a controversial, famous figure, you mm. know. And I, I'm glad they decided to not take a black and white approach on the film on him, but actually let him be. Um, uh, of the complex character that he was and while the film is not accurate on the complexity of his character his real character compared to what the film portrays but at least they didn't simplify it and at least they didn't dumb it down and they took the time and they took a lot of time it is a long film to let us explore this character which is really really cool Um, I did uh, read somewhere I don't know how true this is, but uh, T. E. Lawrence was like five foot five. Yeah, and he traveled yeah. tall as like six. six foot two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two. yeah. yeah no, yeah, which, is, yeah. which is massively different, and also might. This might not be true, but it might come into his ego thing. Exactly, his little the smaller small man. man. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. and obviously also the possibly gay as well. Yeah, probably I think, likely. I think yes. it's very likely. Uh, yeah. So yeah, both of those things in nineteen fourteen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. very very. Can understand why you might start having yeah, a bit of a god complex. I mean, but not just that. I think the uh, uh, the the film uh, very interestingly also features no women. Yeah. Yeah. at all only dead or failed yeah. no, no women so as you said and the only women that do appear are the ones that tell that cheer on the men for going to war yeah, yeah. that and scene that's, in the desert where yeah, they're the wailing exactly but there's, really but there's, there's yeah. absolutely no women in the film yeah. it's a very yeah. very you know it's okay I'm not going to call it homoerotic but it, it is, is homoerotic yeah. 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 I think he is too yeah, I mean, he's definitely. such a beautiful man yeah. I mean yeah, the mouth alone is really like Incredible. <laughs> Somebody smitten. Yeah. <laughs> he was so beautiful. He was a handsome man. And it's no a shame question. that his later life was ruined with alcohol, etc. And mm-hmm. I think oh, he yeah. sort of fell out of favour. But he, God, he was angelic looking, really. Yeah, he was a beautiful, beautiful man, no <laughs> yeah. question. It was that um, scene with the uh, Turkish general when he got his shirt off, and the Turkish general literally goes, Yes. Yeah. Well, well, put it this way. Put it this way. He did get raped in a Turkish prison. At least well, he claims. Uh, he you claims. Know. Yeah. And Everybody talked. Um, no, it wasn't in the film, of course, but in a. Can I mention history buffs? Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, the YouTube channel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but history buffs, and he loves the movie. But he, he did. I mean, the video about it's 
debunking of all the historical inaccuracies, and apparently it didn't happen, or at least didn't happen. Some people like say that. so. There are people that claim that they think that his account of it is uh, inaccurate or incomplete. And you know? why would you tell that you're raped by another man? I mean, if it had happened, I'd think most people would want to would deny it, and hide it. it. Yeah. And make, saying it happened when it hadn't, it's, I mean, it's very it's, strange. I, Unless I, he had some sort of homosexual experience and he had to sort of explain it to himself, you know, explain um, it in a way that it wasn't his fault or something. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not one to judge on whether he did or didn't. You know, no, I mean, but it is a controversial. We'll never know. But, but it's also a controversial position to take even in 1962 whenever the film yeah. came out. I mean, mm-hmm. because homosexuality still was not widely accepted. Well, so illegal. obviously, it's in, illegal, in yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and in, in the film, the rape part of it was implicit. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they obviously did not go anywhere further other than a few subtle looks and stares. And for the people that read the book, obviously know what this implies. Yeah. And everybody else just thinks he may have gotten tortured. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that's that's basically what, what they're talking about. And the scene where he's, where he's beaten mm-hmm. is interesting from the point of view of what he says in that first scene we watched, where he, he said, being asked about how you put a match out with your fingers, the trick is not to mind, mind that it hurts. Exactly. And I think that's, yeah. a, that's, that, that's a very... Uh, I think what the scene that we just watched really shows is just how idealistic he mm-hmm. actually was mm-hmm. and how not that he was by the end of the film. And yeah. that's why I think, for, for me personally, I feel like his, his decision to reject the, uh, the, the reward to, for his heroism you know, was, would have been a very, very important you know finale to his character you know i mean where all the all the heroics that he thought he was going to undertake actually resulted in something that he did not want you know and and that he was a pawn in the end of it yeah maybe he didn't have that affinity with britain either you know he was so pro the arabs Mm -hmm. it was he was almost like a split personality about the two cultures he seemed to have felt at home there with them yeah Well, speaking of uh, Arab culture, though, um, and his affinity with it, I would like to evolve our conversation to the tea, um, to the Bedouin tea specifically. And we actually have a scene where uh, the, with the, the scene that sort of brought this film into this conversation, which is uh, where um, T. Lawrence and specifically Omar Sharif, who is unfortunately the one Arab actor in this film um, everybody else is not it's Arab they're all in brown face you know what I mean so I mean they, they, there are plenty of uh, there are plenty of uh, North Africans and stuff like that in the film but Omar Sharif is the yeah, only yeah they're extras they're extras yeah, exactly yeah. you know what I mean so uh, but at least this is uh, Omar Sharif did a fantastic job in this role and really really did great character Lemir Ali yes exactly yes, exactly yes Sharif Ali Sharif Sharif Ali right Sharif right, Ali. right 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 فراج الأورانس truly for some men nothing is written unless they write it <laughs> not الأورانس just Lawrence الأورانس is better true Your father to just Mr. Lawrence. My father is Sir Thomas Chapman. Is that a lord? A kind of lord. Then when he dies, you too will be a lord. No. Ah. You have an elder brother. No. But then, I do not understand this. Your father's name is Chapman. Ali. 
He didn't marry my mother. I see. I'm sorry. It seems to me that you are free to choose your own name, then. Yes. I suppose I am. Well, Lawrence is best. All right. I'll settle for El Horas. So this scene is obviously crucial, right? Because it really shows just how not, how much he embraced Arab culture and that he even took on their pronunciation of his name, but also that they embraced him, you know? And the following scene of this is when they uh, dress him in, in their garb, you know? And he, you know, even asks permission, is it okay if I, you know, if I, if I wear this and behave this way? And they were like, yes, please, you know, I mean, you are one of us. And... I think to, to his... It's after he saves Kasim. Uh, exactly, right? exactly. It's when he proves Islam. himself, you yeah, know. that. Yeah. The, the, and I think this is a really, really uh, crucial moment, which is nice that there's a cup of tea in it. Um, and, and I think, uh, although we had, a, we had a bit of a conversation about what they were actually drinking, because yes, the bedroom I mean, also drinks coffee. I still coffee. think it might have been coffee. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, the, the pot... Big, big spout and yeah, those cups... It's more a coffee pot, isn't it? It is. Yeah, tea pot. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but it's entirely possible it's, uh, that it is tea, and be the better do drink tea. Um, mm -hmm. So let's explore the kind of tea that they could have been drinking in this very scene. Um, obviously, we could not quite replicate what they do in the scene, which is to cook it on an open fire and stuff like that. But uh, tell me about the kind of tea that the Bedu drink. And I know you actually said some interesting information about that as well. Yes, the, the sort of tea that they would have been drinking then, and of course now geographically it's a different area. So you've got people all over drinking different types of tea, but the Bedu at that time would have been drinking black tea, probably from Ceylon, Sri Lanka, possibly from India. And that would have been a small-leaved, uh, strong black tea. And what they do, they get their wood fire burning and they put water on to boil in a pot, not in a kettle or a, a pan, as we would do, but in a, actually in the pot the tea's going to be drunk mm. from. And they put water and sugar together into the pot, a lot of sugar, and the sugar is allowed to melt into the water as it's coming up to a simmer. And as soon as you get to the beginning of bubbles, you add the tea. You don't stir it in, you sprinkle it on the top of the water and let it just begin to uh, absorb water and descend to the bottom of the pot. But they also sometimes add other herbs to that. So it could be cinnamon, it could be uh, cardamom, which we've put in our tea. It could be any of those other spices. It could have been sage, green herbs, etc. Sometimes more than one. And this is true of a lot of people today in, in the various Arab um, states. And um, they then simmer it gently on the wood fire. We did it on the stove for a minimum of 10 minutes. Um, I was always told 20 minutes, by which time it really has developed all the flavours. The smaller the leaf of tea that you're um, allowing to simmer, 
the more extract of strength and colour and caffeine, etc., will come out into the water. But what they also do is, as we said, there's also sugar in there. So whereas if we prepared our builder's tea like that with the same sort of small leaf tea and we stewed it in the pot in the tea bag for five minutes, it would then become undrinkable. And that's why in many ways people in this country and elsewhere put milk and sugar into the tea to make it more palatable and smoother on the palate. But with this, this sugar is there partly for energy, but also to make it very palatable. So they're getting a lot of caffeine, a lot of strong flavour, and they've got the energy from mm-hmm. the sugar. I really like the nickname that it has, uh, calling it Bedouin whiskey. Bedouin whiskey, yeah. 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 It's, I think it's great because it's, it's We're going to drink it in a shot glass. Yeah. <laughs> and tea Actually, is still so important to that part of the world. Absolutely. They're the biggest drinkers of tea. Absolutely. They used to say the Irish were, but I think that's all the Arab states make up for that now. Oh, I think exactly. I think the uh, um, just for the people listening. Obviously, because uh, we do have video recording here, but for the people listening, uh, we actually have a lovely setup here in the middle with uh, with a tea warmer, a brass tea kettle, and uh, some Moroccan tea cups. Right, so yes. these are these are North African. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't quite manage to get um, some Arabic ones, but this is close enough. And the Moroccans actually drink green tea mostly. So right? growing up in Jerusalem, yes. this is what I saw all the time in the old city. Yes. I mean, it was little glass cups in a metal yeah. holder, little carrier, you know, carried around by boys, giving it to all the shop yeah. holders. And yeah. Okay. The use of equipment. I'm just thinking, we have tea in the teapot on a flame. I mean, it works. Yeah, it's, it's, it's close to a imagination. fire. Yeah. We can, we can, we can <laughs> actually make it flames. It's as good as we can do, really. The difference in the taste would be that if you've got a wood fire burning, you're going to get a slight smokiness yeah. in the, in the oh. taste of the tea, whereas this won't have that because it was on an electric stove. So shall we pour? Um, let's let's do this. Um, Jane, would you let's do the honours, please? Yes. Um, what I was going to say as well about this whole thing of drinking tea together, it's always about welcome mm. right. and harmony and, you know, communic- communicative uh, gatherings. Oh, it's really dark. It's really dark. dark. Well, I guess that's the, that's the case even now with tea in just normal homes in the UK. Uh, yes, although a lot of people offer, would offer coffee now, I think. Yeah, that as well. Tea's not so... Mm-hmm. Um, but it's offering guests, isn't yes. it? Yes. It looks like coffee. Like, I mean, this is... It's this really could, dark, This is very, it? very dark tea. But the, the thing about the welcome is that, you know, there is quite a ritual about that. You In some parts of, of the Arab um, area, you are expected to drink three cups of tea. Oh, wow. And when you've drunk three cups, you're a friend. When you start, oh. you're a stranger. But after three cups of tea, you actually are part of, you know, the grouping. In some parts, they also have a lovely saying that when you're drinking tea like this, they say the first cup is as gentle as life. The second cup is as strong as love. The third cup is as bitter as death. Oh, wow. wow. I like Careful. that. Oh, my gosh. Can we wow. skip the third one? <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we, tra- shall we taste? Shall we taste what we're, yes. what we're in for? Because I'm, I have honestly have no oh, expectations. We had some cardamoms in here as well. Oh, that we crushed. Oh, the cardamom. I really love really taste the cardamom. That is actually it's so difficult for builders tea with sugar so thrown in. It's a really this is fantastic. You know what I want next to this now? Knaffe. Oh, you want some knaffe? Oh, I want some knaffe. Do you know what knaffe is? It, it's a sweet, is it? It's a dessert, yeah. It's made with a kadaifi, sort of a fine uh, vermicelli. Yes. And it's with cheese and then the red chili the whole thing is steeped with sugar water yes. or honey yeah, or honey yeah. and then it's baked together like and it has a sort of orangey color yeah but it's yeah. not it's not yeah. leaf pastry it's yeah. this vermicelli there Kadif. interesting and i know it from you know the aspects of jerusalem from abu Ghosh and the villages yeah abu Ghosh, because that's where i had it it's, 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 it's ridiculously sweet and rich so you have to have a 
sort of either very yeah. strong coffee this or strong tea. This is so drinkable. Mm. Oh, this Lovely. is extremely drinkable. And if you brewed yeah. this same tea in the British way, you know, about mm-hmm. so much in the pot and then maybe three minutes, it would be completely different. Mm-hmm. No, it, would yeah. be, it would be good, yeah. but you, this sweetness just makes it into something but you, quite, quite different. But you can feel that, that, uh, that black tea dry mm-hmm. texture yeah. still yeah, hanging in there. Bit, that's yeah. still, that's still there because it's so strong. Yeah. Exactly. But it doesn't like if if I did that with a regular tea bag, it would be undrinkable. Like like I don't like it when it's that strong, you know. When I feel, when I feel that in there, yeah. because on a regular cup of tea, yeah. I find that too distracting. Yeah. Well, but not here, we do it with lemon. Hmm? We do it with lemon. Well, lemon yeah. helps ease that. Yeah. Milk would help ease that, mm-hmm. you know. But you, straight black, that's usually what kind of takes me out of it. This know? is uh, one step away from chai mm. in India, right. which would be cooked oh, yeah, like yeah. this, but with the milk as well. Right. Yeah. In India, the way you prepare it is you put everything in the pan. Mm-hmm. So the tea which would be, a, again, a strong, small small leaf tea that will give lots and lots of colour and strength. And then you add some kind of sweetener. It doesn't have to be sugar. It could be honey, it could be jaggery, which is the really dark mm-hmm. brown sugar that they use in India. Um, and then you would add whatever spices you wanted to. There are five traditional ones, including black pepper, which gives it a real oh. zing. Oh, wow, really? And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. But you put the milk in there, and it could be condensed milk, evaporated milk, cow's milk, um, whatever milk you use. So if you're, if, you're, if you're vegan, what would be a good alternative? in this case well I don't know that um, they have anything in India like that but you could use oat milk or whatever right. it, it, it just fine. smooths it down mm-hmm. I've never done it with um, with oat milk almond milk all of those things would be fine I wouldn't use soy milk it's a bit right. chalky and right. powdery um, but you could you could find alternatives but the thickness the sweetness is sometimes added by using lots of condensed milk which right. is of course thick oh, enough to spread milk. on bread oh, you right. know um, but everybody in India everybody you talk to has a totally different recipe right and um, some will use just ginger, some will use just cardamoms. Fruit ginger is probably the most popular because right. it gives you that lovely warming effect. It's I'm a perfect drink. Ginger, right? It's a cure for yeah. the yeah, I'm really the loving the cardamom in this. I, honestly, yeah, I've lovely. never had cardamom outside of I rice. Know, yeah, yeah. so this was. Powdered, of course. Hmm? So oh, yeah, you need the yeah, pods. You need the pods. It's best to crush them a little bit so you get the flavour coming through. It's interesting what you were saying with the black tea thing. Because I can taste that without the sugar, it would taste like slightly bitter black tea. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I can't yeah. taste the bitterness at yeah. it, yeah. you can sort of tell. It's yeah. there. Really it's, 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 true. it's in yeah. the aftertaste, isn't it? It yeah. is. Like the Back of the tongue, exactly. like, yeah. like unripe fruit. You yeah, exactly. Sort of what this, we would yeah. call astringency. Which is the yeah. sort of dry mouth What's effect, astringency. Astringency. Okay, yeah. okay that's a te- yeah. nice technical term. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to use that for people. You're a very <laughs> astringent person. <laughs> it's, bitter there are two, sweet. two words that people mix up in tea. They talk about bitter taste, mm-hmm. right. which you you get back here, uh-huh. and which is not particularly pleasant if it's if it's too strong. Yeah. And astringency, which people muddle up with that, is a dry drying effect mm-hmm. throughout your entire mouth. Right. Like when you put a banana skin in your mouth. Exactly. Or right. an unripe grape. Right. You know, it's really mm-hmm. just it feels like sucks all the water oh, out. I see. So you get a hint of that with this. Yeah. Oh, there, there are some people that I know that I could call astringent is <laughs> you know, just suck all the water out of it. Oh yeah. drains and radiators. <laughs> Um, so um, I, I find it interesting because this is clearly the kind of tea that Bedou would drink all the time. Right? Yes, I mean, this is, this is this is exactly this is yeah. their English yeah. breakfast. Yeah. This is their you know and still today yeah. exactly exactly. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, and I wonder just how much of this stuff um, Peter O'Toole must have had hanging out oh, with the Bedou uh, during the yeah. shoot. I mean, it's got it's had to have been constant. Um, the, Isn't there a picture of him in full regalia drinking just proper tea from an ordinary in, in mug? the tent with the King? Tent. Was it when he meets King Faisal? 
Um, it's not from the film. It's on no, set. No, it's from behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, they're dressed up for the shoot, mm-hmm. but they're just you know having you a bit of a break. Right here. So yeah. I've got yeah, Peter O'Toole and Jack Hawkins yeah. basically drinking tea, tea, sort of behind the yeah. scenes, and oh. I can't, I can't really tell what the, I don't know if this would be uh, Bedu tea or anything like that. I mean, they're clearly yeah. in but, Spain though. I mean, this is uh, yes. this is this is the uh, uh, Seville. They filmed all the Sevilla. city scenes in Sevilla. Um, May I pour myself another? Oh yeah, it's not the royal There you go. So. Well, no, they it's probably Irish tea. Well, it's, it's, probably, it's probably standard black English <laughs> yeah, breakfast kind yeah. of blend. Do you know um, English breakfast tea was invented in America? Oh, <laughs> was it? No. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. <laughs> Oh my God! Is it no. like that myth of the oh. of the big breakfast that someone invented to sell more bacon no, and I, hash browns? I think it was just the fact that they knew what we were drinking at that time, and our blends, our English breakfast blends, are typically made with teas from our colonies, mm. so India, Sri Lanka, East Africa, and that is still the typical mix with different proportions. Mm-hmm. And so um, maybe the Americans thought we're going to try and replicate what the oh, Brits are drinking. Right. And then this guy in New York invented this blend, called it English breakfast. And, and now everybody it. does yeah. it. Oh, oh my God. they chuck all the tea in Boston into the water. <laughs> they're inventing her. Yeah. Why they like? were first at everything. <laughs> Why like? Leave our tea alone. <laughs> <laughs> just got a... They, the Americans started drinking tea, tea before we did. Did no they? way, really. They did, because if you think about people emigrating to the New World, uh-huh. okay, the Dutch are the first settlers there. Yeah. The Dutch oh, yeah. were the main importers of tea into Europe in around about 1610, oh, right. long India. before us. Yeah. So they all had their tea things at home. So when they started emigrating, they took all their tea things with them. Mm-hmm. So when we pinched New Amsterdam and renamed it New York... Everybody was already drinking tea, and they couldn't quite believe it. So that, so yeah, so, really. so so the English um, you're already civilized. Took, yeah. It's wonderful. So so the whole <laughs> so the thing is that uh, the tea culture is so strongly associated with British culture, That's with right, English today culture. It is, yeah, yeah, it absolutely, absolutely that that was kind of uh, um, inherited yeah. in a way yeah. Yeah. from um, from a pre-American yes, yes. Uh, um, uh, New York yeah. uh, kind of culture already existing there. We were the last country. So, in Europe and, and, and asked, we were the last to drink tea. No. Oh first, the Dutch and the Portuguese God. brought tea into Europe in 1610. That's the first sort of record we've got. It may have been before that because the Portuguese were trading out of Macau mm-hmm. during the 16th century. So they, they never mentioned here, we haven't found anything about tea. They were trading porcelains and silks and other things. Mm-hmm. But then it was not till 1657 that tea came into London. Well, so according to on a Dutch ship, I would associate them with coffee so much more than with tea. Now you would, yeah. but you know, it was it was um, the Dutch would just. You should read a little book called Nathaniel's Nutmeg. It's all about the East India companies of the various European states looking for spices because they thought nutmeg cured plague, and wow, plague was killing millions of people. But then, of course, they all they, they made their bases mm-hmm. in different countries. So the Portuguese on Macau with the Chinese mm-hmm. yeah. permission. The Dutch traded out of Java or um, islands around the Spice Islands there. We settled on India because we didn't really get a foothold in China. So that affected the routes they took, the things they were trading. We gradually took over all of India, of course, and mm-hmm. that's why we started growing tea. I knew it was a good idea to bring you on the show. <laughs> like this is so this is so much this is so much this is so much more than I thought I would get. Like I thought, oh this tea is very interesting. Oh my yeah. god, we're getting geopolitical history. Yeah. This yeah. is freaking awesome. I mean and speaking of geopolitics, actually we've got a lot to discuss when it comes to just Lawrence of Arabia Ooh, himself, yes. right? Because the um, the issue is that 
Um, this is a, a yeah. symptom of sort of the last stages of, of English colonialism, right? So, colonial. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Top you up. Top me up, absolutely. Um, the because uh, because 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 English colonialism uh, was already like at its peak by this point, right? Um, yeah. With uh, with India and everything, uh, and a quarter well, of the planet, right? Already I mean, by this, this point. This is first world war, not second. So it wasn't on its way out yet. No, no, no. But what I'm saying, but this is sort of the, the but these are sort of the the so the the last grand movements yeah. before things start collapsing post World War II. The Imperial you know? Century was eighteen fourteen to nineteen fourteen. Exactly, mm. exactly. So, so this is this is sort of the last big sort of land grab before things start ah, yes. falling apart. You know, yes. um, and the last and, and stretch maybe. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the the the, the democratization. I mean, democratization was already in the air around this time, right? So, so more and more um, was moving in that direction. Not necessarily in the UK because the UK had this odd hybrid system already fully fleshed out. But in other places, you know, gaining independence, this I mean, stuff was happening. The uh, Russian Revolution was happening. All this stuff yeah. was already yeah. in full swing. So it's no surprise to me that somebody like T. E. Lawrence would have this impetus to you know, help a people gain mm. independence. And of course, it's no surprise that the people that have been running the country are like, eh, no, I think we're just going to keep it. You know, and this is before they knew that it was as oil rich as it was. Oh, yeah. Like the whole, the, the whole um, uh, oil part came afterwards, you know, but... That's the crazy thing. They still just decided to keep it. They didn't even know oil was there. I was like, nope, it's ours. It's all good. You know, we'll just carve it up between it us. It feels like yeah. more sort of eager on principle than I anything else. I mean, I mean, I don't know the exact details of that, but the fact that it happened this way mm. is really quite incredible. And the fact that T. Lawrence, naively, I think, you know, yes. thought he could, you know, um, uh, um, give these people at least their 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 independence and was able was played a part in uniting certain tribes. Um, to try and you know uh, create something cohesive, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. But I mean, also you know he was interesting enough. He was fighting imperialism. He was fighting the Turkish imperialism, yeah. you know. And then he was. I mean, you know, he did and he didn't. He was very much the British agent. I mean, in the film, it seems like he doesn't know about the Sykes Picot agreement. Mm-hmm. That when he comes to the, knew, the, uh, right? to, to Amir Faisal and, and his other partners, asking them to to sort of to roll this rebellion against the Ottomans, and he said. It seems like he very innocently and truthfully promises them, if you do this, the British will be grateful and appreciative and give yourself rule by the end of it. He knew about the Saxe-Picot Agreement. He was a British man, and he didn't tell them because that would have made him a traitor, not to the Arabs. He was probably personally more aligned with but with his actual people and actual employers and he was he was a soldier yeah man but he didn't have a choice right it's not like he could have suddenly told them and if he had told them he would have been he a traitor been he a traitor could have been tra- exactly oh, and that would have ended his life further than anything else would have absolutely. so so he knew what he was walking into and but the idea was that he would at least try to once they have their independence try to renegotiate but with the British the and thing, see if, what could happen if they you take know? Damascus they'll let them keep it right and, and so, that was the hope so that I mean? scene where all the tribes are there mm-hmm. and the whole thing falls apart. Mm-hmm. Slightly fictionalized, right? Because right. because the film takes the position that the whole thing falls apart and nothing stays, right? Except that they were ruling for years after this. You yeah. know what I mean? So this was a far more stable system than the film likes to portray. But I think in the context of the film, they had to... Mm. Like condense this idea yes. that it just was not sustainable yeah. onto its own, and that the British were always going to betray them and stuff like that. So they had to fudge that a little bit, you know. I think the only sort of negative part about this, and I'd like to get into this more uh, a little bit as well, is that is it portrays the Arabs as incompetent, 
you know, um, un- incapable of self-rule, petty. Yeah, they can't know, get over the petty differences. Exactly, yeah. and 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 that is not and that is not true. Yeah, you know what I mean that right. is absolute. That that is not true. They had they were perfectly capable to try and figure out the rule, but the British very actively were more undermining those efforts. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean to 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 allow they for play them against each other. Yes, very exactly. Yeah. In order to establish, you know, yeah. British industry, British trade, blah blah. And I blah, think blah. maybe yeah. the historical truth as it was is just too complex to portray in a film I mean, especially mm-hmm. about one person because yeah. obviously it was divided between I mean there was a divide between France and Britain the Saxe-Bicco agreement that you know was realised after the war and but the British never liked to rule directly they always had sort of puppet governments mm-hmm. and puppet sheikhs and kings and whatever to make it have the appearance of self-governance and self-rule when in fact they were dictated to by the Brits by the governor in the name of the king or queen yeah, and that's what the Arab coalition was at that point. They let them stay in power. They ran things. They ran the water, the electricity, the the you know, petty claims court or whatever they had. Mm-hmm. But there was you know British siphoning off riches and resources and generally having their boot so very that, much there. That conversation at the end was actually almost like a metaphor about the water treatment plant mm. with uh, Prince Faisal mm-hmm. and the. British major, mm-hmm. yes, um, and he said, "Yeah, we'll have the British engineers, we'll have a Saudi flag over mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. like the metaphor of what they're doing to the entire country." Mm-hmm. It is exactly, it's very truthful, I think. It's it's definitely it's true, I, and but it, the, 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 that is the that is sort of I think the biggest sort of flaw the film has and it, it has to be put into 1960s um, sort yeah, of context that's, that's it thing. is it is the kind it is the way they're portrayed in the film it wouldn't really be possible now so you have to watch it mm. you know just like well, I mentioned Ben-Hur earlier you kind of have to watch it from a 1950s perspective it's not necessarily the most progressive no, perspective you know no. um, but I have to say um, for 1962 the portrayal of uh, of of the uh, Arab tribes and the Arab characters, despite being in brownface with Alec Guinness in brownface with um, uh, Anthony Quinn in brownface, who I think does an incredible job yeah, as a character. Yeah. His performance is, I yeah, think, the best one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, he, his performance is the best yeah. in the in the film. He and he apparently he fully committed to the role as well. Yeah. Like, all in on the character, really, really. I mean, to the point where he, my left the, foot the, 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 well, maybe not quite as method as uh, as. Uh, as Daniel Day Lewis went on my left foot, but um, still, like it went. There's this story that goes about that he basically showed up on set in full regalia, full outfit, mm-hmm. and David Lean didn't recognize him, yeah. oh, wow. and was basically uh, uh, was asking where is Anthony Quinn so he can be on set because I'm about to replace Anthony with this guy. Yeah, you know what I mean. So there's this Maybe, there's this yeah. little sort of anecdote that comes around. I question the yeah. truthfulness of it. It yeah, sounds like sounds like Academy Awards propaganda. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where oh, he's so convincing. But it was but, convincing. But he was—he was by far yeah. the most convincing character, and, and it's it um, hard and, absolutely. and tough and and but funny. But it's one of the things that yeah. they like. when he finds when they take Mecca and he's there for the for the gold for the riches and for his pleasure, Akaba. obviously. Yeah. Akaba. Sorry, Akaba, Akaba. Yes. I keep making that mistake. And he finds his chest. He's looking, 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 not finding anything, breaking everything. There's and no and he finds here. his chest. Yeah. And he finds paper money, and he yes. throws it because yes. he thinks it's just tissue. Yeah. I doubt that's true. No, I'm sure you recognize paper yeah. money for what it is and yeah. exactly what it's worth. And it's yeah. like, what is this nonsense? Yeah. Where's the gold? This yeah. isn't. I mean, he wasn't that ignorant. I can't. He was a sheikh of many years with a 
And spoke perfect English as well. Yeah, so he knew what money was. Yeah. So yeah, ex- yeah. but but as I think I think this is where the film is as good as they could do in the sixties, yeah. you know. Without, uh, but I think considering all that, I think they do a really good job of being, you know, um, fair of per- giving a fair portrayal of Arabs. You know, it's only the few bits where you go, uh, they could have been a bit more delicate and a bit more accurate in here, in here, in here. But generally speaking, um, I do not have a derogatory portrayal of uh, of Arab culture or anything like that I mean speaking of speaking of brown face and sort of Bedouins uh, I mentioned Ben-Hur previously um, because they are two big historic epics and they're separated by almost a decade um, oh. but yeah yeah because um, it was, ben, was uh, 54 if I remember wow. correctly yeah so, uh, yeah so so but it's there, there is a Bedou, there's a Bedou character uh-huh. in Ben-Hur that Ben-Hur encounters as a horse trader mm-hmm. and the portrayal of the Bedou in Lords of Arabia is actually you know very well balanced there's nothing cartoony about them you know um, they, 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 they they are portrayed the way they would look, or at least mostly, you oh, know. Yeah, and the outfit's very authentic. But yeah, exactly, you know. And but if you watch Ben Hur, the Bedou character there is like you show you enter the tent and it's an orgy of evidence that he's bad with it is it's just it is it is practically cartoon and gold coins you know? dangling from everywhere exactly it is it is again it is it is that kind of sentiment and it, it shows you know that they had no real interest in portraying middle eastern culture in, in, with any authenticity whatsoever um so you know so uh, considering a decade went past in that, from the time they made that movie to the time they made this the one, sixties was such a different time. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And it's material. It's taken from a book who was very much in love with Arab culture, with Bedouin mm. culture. Absolutely. So his love, his appreciation, respect had to seep through a bit. Mm. Absolutely. Didn't his brother say after seeing the film that it was not a fair um, portrayal mm-hmm. of his of his brother? Um, well, the uh, because the the big controversial thing about the accuracy of his thing is that in the film they portray him as a man who enjoyed the violence despite mm. his better nature. You know what I mean? And that is not accurate. Like he was actually quite perturbed by the things. The the, yeah, the, the moment the, the, the moment there's a there's a big moment where he basically has to again spoilers kill a um, uh, kill a character that he. Saved. Exactly. Right and and he, and because yeah. exactly and and that was I mean that I forgot about that scene and that caught me off guard that he's now forced to do this and he knows he has to or else there will be no peace you know between these tribes exactly. and so he has to kill this one person he exactly yeah. he and he went through hell to try and save this character yeah. and then this character basically forces him into yeah. the situation and that is true that really happened that was an actual historical event and he was completely distraught by it mm-hmm. like it completely messed with mm-hmm. his head mm-hmm. um, yeah, and the, the, describes finding him later so the, he sort of disappeared yes. after that finding hiding behind a rock crouching and bawling like a child he was broken exactly yeah, but the film necessarily no the film goes as far as him yeah. saying I enjoyed it yeah. you know, it was disturbed he, it's interesting that he admitted it. that was it? it was almost as if he was so frightened of that element mm-hmm. that yeah, he that had to he had to tell other people well yeah. if he was going to tell somebody it would have been smart to tell his superiors you know at, yeah. at some point but in general it, that's not true yeah. like, that is something be, I think still glorified war there's a glorification especially what's interesting now especially at the time we're talking about this podcast is one of the like the greatest war films at portraying how mm. awful it was mm. all, all quite on the western front yes. come out, and you can see like what would have actually gone through someone's head mm-hmm. during especially the same war 
mm -hmm. same time. Yeah. Interesting juxtaposition between glorification of yeah. British imperialism and, and but slaughter. I think but I think the, the, the film, interesting enough, is very much it is told in two parts, but it is also narratively in two parts. Whereas the first half of the film really pushes the sort of white savior narrative. Oh, you know, of uh, it's like he's coming, he's there to save the Arabs, they're gonna get the thing, blah blah and you know, um, the glory of it, the poetry of it, nah, nah, nah. it pushes that narrative as far as it can reasonably go. And then it ends with this little mini cliffhanger of, well, you know, it's not going to go quite as we expect, which is cool. It's a great cliffhanger to the end of the film. And then the second half of the film deconstructs that whole idea of the white savior narrative and that he's going to come in there. But in the end, he was just a pawn. He was never going to save anybody. You know, um, he was just this little bit of a piece on a larger chessboard that somebody else maneuvered. And he with his idea uh, with his ideology just followed thinking he was making a difference you know but on a geopolitical scale he was he, he, meant, was, nothing. he, he meant nothing well like know? like oh who was it that said uh the, the one who preceded allenby in managing that uh, that theater of war he said this is a sideshow of a sideshow right the yeah. main theater of events is the western front it's europe yeah. And this is a sideshow and the arab rebellion is a sideshow sideshow of the sideshow yeah. and, and he is a minor character in the sideshow yeah. of a sideshow. If it means anything, right? So, and he knew that it might mean nothing. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it grew and escalated to the scale that it did was really impressive. I mean, of course, Britain's, it did help the war. It did. I mean, they literally know? use it as a distraction to keep the Turks busy while they were attacking them somewhere else. Exactly. That's you, it was. you do see in that second half, you do see a difference in the way he behaves. Yeah. He becomes godlike. Yeah. You know, the, the picture where he climbs on the top of the train yeah. and he's standing and there and then it gets like shut a, down yeah, yeah exactly but, but that's the thing though is that he is that he basically you know starts realizing that the the people he's leading you know are this is not what he had in mind he he was going to fight a war what he's bringing is a slaughter mm -hmm. yeah what i mean and the and uh, and not just that any self and any form of justice or righteousness goes out the window when he completely okays the massacre of, was, of, of Turkish okay. troops. Cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. And but those are the and that's also completely yeah. true. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that uh, it, what's not true about it is that he enjoyed the yeah. violence. Yeah. That's not true. Yeah. But what he said that take no prisoners that is completely true. true. And 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 that is in itself really quite um, an eye opening tale of this is that is that is that the first half is so driven by the singular narrative we will save thing and and the second half just falls apart in it with him as a um as this protagonist who's driving anything because suddenly he's losing control over the yeah. whole thing but maybe you know? that's also a comment about war in general you know that it becomes a slaughter in which you can't you can't stop it it just rolls on under its own Power. Another point. I mean, you know how you got getting. You don't have to. You don't know how you're going to get out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And the enjoyment yeah. of the slaughter. I mean, maybe that is what happens to people in 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 hand to hand it fighting. To. It's right. it's horrific. But and it was it was so graphic as well. With swords coming down. Oh, yeah. and yeah. Really frightening. It's, and it's as good as they could do in the '60s, right? Because yes. that's the next yes. thing. It's like uh, one actually one uh, moving on to a slightly more technical part of the filmmaking of this is. By the way, I'm really enjoying this tea. This is so good. I'm. I feel like I'm talking faster now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but, the, uh, um, but to get into slightly more technical aspects of the film, the film was shot on 65mm film, which is a very, very large format uh, film. It's designed to be projected on really, really large screens, right? Mm. But they were worried about the speed of cutting 
when you're projecting something on a vast landscape like that. So they were they very very deliberately re reduced the amount of edits to very very few and played everything in very wide takes. So as we saw with both of these films, that there's very very little mm -hmm. constant back and forth thing. They just play the whole scene in one wide shot with maybe one or two cuts. And that's a very, very common thing that the film does. And they were worried that if they cut too much, that it would be too jarring because it's such a large screen. And they were not thinking about TV, you know? They were only thinking that's about the big screen. screen. That's where it would be seen, you know? But they're so impressive, those scenes. Yeah, I mean, amazing. you just think, how on earth did they film this yeah, with yeah. so many people and so mm. many animals? Yeah. And, and seeing all the horses and those crates. Incredible horses. All that sort of riding and jumping on their backs and jumping off the crates. Yeah, it's got to have been a hundred horses there at least. Yeah. Incredible. That's insane. That's one thing a modern movie doesn't do. It, it can't do. Can't do. No and it does have an epic feel. That many extras. It is. Even like the when it they're is. like charging. Yeah. Just hundreds. But you're there with them. Yeah, it's yeah. so clever. It's real. Get and it captured feels real. by. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think I think that is the that is sort of the uh, the one of the crucial parts between the old films and the and the current ones is that. Um, Aside from a much less strict health and safety regimen that oh. people went through back then, you know, they could get away with quite a bit more. Um, mm -hmm. The requirement, because there were no alternatives, you had to do it for real. And so basically yeah. the, two, the two directors, I mean, there's a couple others, but the two directors that basically made the biggest movies, the biggest epics of that time, David Lean and William Wyler, and William Wyler did... Ben Hur, you know, I mean, so he's they're known for these big spectacle films. This is yeah. what they do, you know, um, and uh, and it really shows that they understood what it means to show spectacle you know mm. don't just give me a bunch of close-ups show me the whole thing and yeah. they had to there was no I'm going to add some extra horses in CGI these are real people on real horses and real camels and I'm going to get to the camels in a second mm. yeah. um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, riding across vast swaths of yeah. desert um, with all the encampments being really there etc et and very very few I don't even know I, I can't picture a single moment where there was a matte painting in this film um, where you uh, do, do you know what a matte painting is basically a matte painting is instead of having a green screen I'm sure you've seen that instead of having a green screen what they would do is they would set the camera up and then a, a painter would take a piece of glass put it in front of the camera and paint the background oh, wow. of something and the thing below that or to the side of it would be real right. and then the matte painting would be in the background and um, Ben Hur had some really really fantastic matte paintings um, I can't recall a scene in this film where they could have had matte paintings I'm pretty sure all the locations that everything see that's the thing, is the, the real deal Vadiram, yeah. which had I mean that's everything Thing that you see that's uh, sort of this yellowy orangey sand and then black rock outcrops that's Vadiram because the beginning where he just gets he gets introduced to uh, Faisal to Emir Faisal yeah yeah Emir Faisal and uh, the whole thing starts I recognize Vadiram but then they travel 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 they meet Awad and he says be my guest come dine with me at my pleasure in Vadiram like ha 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 they just came from there this is somewhere else <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's a of course. That, that yes. reminded me of the, uh, something very 60s about this film, because you were saying mm -hmm. like the, the rocks and the red desert mm -hmm. and stuff, which was very like West, the Western yeah. films. Yeah. But they did like um, 
The, like the uh, Arab guy, the Arabs riding on horses, they yeah. did whoop like Native Americans in this yeah, film, no, which I, I thought, oh, that's got to be a bit dodgy. I, I, did I, they I, do we, that I, really? Or I don't is that a Native so. American like spaghetti western thing? I, 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 I think there's... like a, the savages. <laughs> no, but I do I do think that that was added. I don't think that that is a, uh, is a historically accurate thing. They needed, no, not, I think yeah. they needed think so. something to show that these are, they're energetic, they're, uh, they're, they, they're yeah. about to go, and so they use these kinds of but it's of, proper Native American it is it, it sounded it sounded yeah. Native American and they, they, we both <laughs> yeah, noticed as well when we watched it we're like uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think that's quite no. accurate you know but, I, but to be honest I don't know you know yeah, I mean? yeah. so this this could be a okay similar sound period, so isn't it? it's yeah it's it's, early it's, 60s, yeah. it's it's possible that yeah, the yeah. sound designer in this needed to add something to add energy and then they just yeah. well I've got this stock sound yeah. from Native American <laughs> thing I can just add that and maybe that'll do if we make it subtle enough it'll do but there's a couple of factors here that I want to bring in. Um, Peter O'Toole added a rubber sponge to the camel saddle because riding camels is just not a comfortable affair if you're not used to it. So basically, in order to make his bits just a bit more comfortable, he added this. He went to the local market and bought a rubber sponge um, in order to make that more comfortable. And a lot of the other cast members ended up doing that too, which earned him the nickname the father of the sponge. <laughs> I love that, but in Bye. Arabic, what but is in that? Arabic, it's oh, okay. I'm gonna butcher this. I'll let you try the Arabic. Um, Abal sponge. Um. Yeah. So I know sponge and this sponge. Abal sponge. Yeah. yeah no, it could, could be a, yeah. a derivative. I mean, in Hebrew, it's forged in sponge and Arabic. That's yeah. Um, but it's but basically the father yeah. of the sponge <laughs> um, became his nickname uh, during this the shoot. His crown this is yeah, well, yeah, because okay. it's. I mean, I don't know if you remember what they looked like. In fact, in the one tea scene uh, where he's laying down, he's resting against the saddle yeah. and it's these two large golden things yeah, that he's yeah. strapped in yeah, you know has to sit in and of course the no. bits get bruised and you know? they sit the camel is right it's not like a horse which grew of course for us to ride yes. right it has a nice little bowl on the back a plate for us to sit in the camel is yeah. There's, you're sitting around. on the hump yeah. Yeah, exactly. and you're also hell. sitting slightly side saddle mm-hmm. with that one leg no, that's the way the camel saddle you wrap yeah. the, your leg yeah. around the, the sort it of looks very the horn of the saddle <laughs> So yeah. yeah, so uh, basically in his discomfort, he became a legend. Uh, father of the sponge. Uh, of the sponge. Um, and that nickname stuck with him during production. That's um, it's, it's a great factoid. I absolutely yeah. love that so much. Let's move on to the uh, uh, last scene that I want to talk about, mm-hmm. which is actually sort of towards the conclusion of the film. Um, and it's basically the run-up of this. is a moment we talked about before with the large um, uh, uh, Arab tribes trying to mm-hmm. r- run Damascus and they do the best that they can. And it doesn't quite white work and here and the fallout from this is that um, that the uh, medical attention to much uh, that is needed doesn't quite happen um, and uh, and Lawrence uh, and Lawrence um, only really comes to that realization um, in this moment in all my years as a medical officer I've never seen anything like it comes within the jurisdiction of the Arab Council. I'm sorry, sir. Under the circumstances, I think I must take over. Immediately. Under any circumstances at all, you must obey your orders. No, sir. I will not. Control yourself. Now go over to the town hall and see what they say. We did what we could in the civic hospital. But you forgot the Turkish military hospital. Yes. It has 600 beds. 
There are about 2,000 Turkish wounded in it, all of whom are the responsibility of your precious Arab Council. What's it like? Yeah, and then after this, when he says what's it like, he walks into the hospital, the uh, troop hospital of the Turkish army and finds bodies and bodies and bodies of untreated people that will die, you know, and that were, according to this story, deliberately left behind in uh, and without any sense of prisoner of war. These people should be taken care of, anything mm. like that. They basically were left to die and deliberately focusing on uh, the local troops uh, than anything else. And this implies that the Brits let them do it in order to show that they can't take care of anything. Basically, and they gave them a rope long enough to hang by. Exactly. And yeah. so this is basically is, is partially used as a justification to retake control. Um, while... In this, uh, in I, I don't think it was a general, um, the 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 medical officer. Um, mm -hmm. He does it obviously for you know Hippocratic reasons. You know he he has an oath to keep. He people need to be taken care of. It doesn't matter that they're prisoners. This cannot stand. This is not okay. The general, of course, is like. They, it's their fault. What are we going to do it about it? It serves our end. Exactly. So they're going to let it happen yeah. just so they can then take over. And you basically use that as a partial justification you for it. You mentioned something you know. less, uh, I mean, that took your attention about him having tea there? Yes, it was yes. just after the scene where there'd been yeah. the discussion with the Arab council as to who was going to take care of the water mm -hmm. and who was going to take care of the power and nothing was working. Mm -hmm. And yet General Allenby actually gets his... Breakfast tray with yeah. his English cup of tea. So we actually have a backup just in case that was coffee. Alanbury, Alanbury saved us. Yeah, but I don't know if he would have had yes. bedu tea. Yeah, I think that no, would have been, been a builder's British, brew. Yeah, yeah. yeah a builder's brew. <laughs> Yorkshire, I think that one. <laughs> and maybe they had a nice wood fire down in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. boil the kettle on. What would the British Army be drinking at this point? Oh, like, I imagine they would have had supplies sent out to them of typical. Uh, would have been loose tea. There were no tea bags till 1930. Right. So, uh, and that was really in America. We didn't take to tea bags till late 60s. Right. Um, I, I grew up with a family having, you know, loose leaf tea bought right. from the grocer and taken from the chest and into a, mm. into a oh, packet. Wow. Yeah. Um, but I suspect that that was part of supplies that was sent out. I know during the war, the soldiers got, you know, supplies of maybe chocolate and some tea mm -hmm. to brew. Tea was just so important to the army mm -hmm. at that time. So how it arrived and what it was, it would have been probably Ceylon tea, which was very, very popular by that time. Could have been Indian, Assam, could have been a blend even. You know, they were blending tea all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think it would have been a pretty British setting, that last mm -hmm. scene, really. So and they had, had, had the silver tray and the silver tea, either silver or some other metal mm -hmm. a milk jug. You could see a sugar bowl and a yeah. teapot. So it was very very British that mm. which I'm sure is true so it would have tasted good then it would well, yeah, yeah even, you know. absolutely well it's you know both be... can be bad tea bag tea can be good oh yeah I okay. guess that's true yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just assume I mean I've got yeah. assumption no, that no, you, good. you've got good and bad in, in both types okay, it depends yeah, you know, it's horses for courses really yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I'd like to um, uh, there's, a, there's a tea thing that I've been told which I never knew whether that was quite true but it just sounded sounded plausible is the tea that you get in a tea bag 
basically the stuff at the bottom of the barrel. You know what I mean? So yeah. like, is, is it really sort of the last, the last vestiges of decent tea that's, you know... That's it's it's always... This is a question can. people always ask because they say, oh, it's just the dust off the floor. But if I tell you, when you manufacture tea, even if you are making what we call orthodox tea, which is large leaves right down through fairly broken pieces, as the tea goes through the process, it becomes drier and so it begins to break so during the process, you've got little bits falling off all the time. So what comes out of the dryer at the end of the process, which removes most of the water content, stops any further oxidation taking place, the tea then has to be sorted very carefully through sieves. They have these machines with different layers, with larger, larger sieve, um, and sometimes right down to really, really small sieve sizes. And so you probably get about 10 or 12 different grades coming off the machine into buckets, barrels, bags, etc. So all of that tea's gone through the same process. It's the same batch of picking, etc. And the reason it's got to be separated out is because if you're going to blend tea or if you're going to brew tea, you've got to use pieces of uniform size. Right. Otherwise, you get an uneven balance. Okay. And if you mix two teas of different sizes and put them in a tin or a packet, by the time it gets to you at your home or in your supermarket, it's de-blended. The little pieces oh. go to the bottom and the big pieces stay on top. So it's no longer a blend. So it has to be separated and each size is then given a name. So we get for the for the broken um, uh, leaves, we get things like BOP, broken orange peco, or FBOP, flowery broken orange peco, which tells you what the grade looks like. It's nothing about quality. It's about what the leaf actually looks like. And the, the smallest grades are called dusts and fannings. And those... They won't fetch such high prices as a really good largely tea, but certain markets around the world, including the Arab world, want the small particles because when you brew it like this, you're going to get more strength right. and colour and, and everything else that, that there is. So this is a myth then? It's yes, it's because it's still the same quality of the tea. It's, it's just yeah, it's it just brews differently. And and when you cut tea up and you get smaller particles, you get the strength and the color, but you don't get the subtlety of flavor. Yeah. So you know this is pretty full on. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of course the tea bags. That is absolutely why people made tea bags. They were meant to deliver the quick fix in competition to instant coffee. Right. So the two developed together. And I see. The, when they when they realized that they needed small of the more of these small particles to fill more and more and more tea bags, they had to change the manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. So in the 19, 1930, somebody invented a new machine that cut the tea up into these little tiny particles mm -hmm. so you wouldn't get any big particles at all. You just got the dusty particles. Mm -hmm. Slightly different sizes, but not much difference. And then they could go into the machines that were packing tea bags. Yeah. But that then meant that as soon as you start drinking tea in a tea bag, you no longer know what the tea looks like. You don't, you don't have much information about where it was grown because you'll just say a blend of teas from around the world or something like that. And so the whole romance of tea began to disappear and right. we're trying to put the romance back <laughs> because when you look at loose leaf tea there's always something you can you can enjoy you can describe you know i mean just this tea that we use today it's small particles but it's nothing like as small as the dust inside a tea bag right. so dust is a grade fannings are a grade they will sell into certain part of the market mm -hmm. and the larger leaf will come what to grade is this one then yeah that's a broken um, so the leaves for that would have been this size, mm -hmm. maybe bigger, and then it goes through a rolling process, which breaks it down. So to wrap this whole thing up, because mm -hmm. it's been super, super interesting, lots of Lawrence of Arabia. God damn it, you ruined it all for me. 
Um, uh, so lots of really cool information about Lawrence of Arabia and of course lots of information about the Bedou tea. So shall we just, I mean, I think we all really enjoyed the film, but let's let's talk about, let's, let me hear from you. Interestingly, I was talking to somebody yesterday, a younger person from abroad, and I said, have you ever heard of Lawrence of Arabia? And they hadn't, of course. And I told them what we were doing and why and how the tea was going to play a part in this story. And for me, I think I've seen it three times now. And when I watched it the other day, ready for this um, filming today, I was amazed how much more I learned because I was really concentrating. Mm. I mean, there's a lot to enjoy without taking in all the history and geography. Visually, it's the most extraordinary film. Mm. Those scenes in the desert with the different lighting and the sunsets and the sunrises was absolutely beautiful. And I was very drawn in, um, Mm. I think more this time because I was so much more aware of looking for the tea scenes, but also the politics of it all was fascinating. I would watch it again today if you gave me three, four hours spare. I would. Well, sit that's down the and watch trick, isn't it? Is finding three, it's four long. hours spare for yeah. it. Ed, how about you? Uh, yeah, I thought it was um, epic. It's your first time, right? Yeah, it's my first time watching it. I thought it was epic, vast. I thought the language was beautiful. I thought the uh, the acting was. It's like nothing you'd see now. Mm. So it's worth it's worth it for a cinematic experience that you won't ever experience now, yeah. because of even the language. Like, let me ignite your cigarette. No one would ever say that. Like, the, the even the evolution of the English language you can mm. see in it. Mm. Uh, so much more poetic and grand, and yeah, I, I think it was cool. Um, I do think obviously there's a lot of geopolitics stuff. And yeah, I mean, it would be ripped to shreds if it came out now. It's not um, a very woke movie, shall no, we say? You know, no, no. A, but that wasn't no. the thing, right? So no, yeah, it's yeah. the idea of 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 brown facing was completely normal. Yeah, at the time. yeah, yeah. Although having having said that, um, they did. There was parts of that where Lawrence was um, ashamed of the racism, which I don't. For sixties, that's impressive because mm. Britain was being told in the sixties that the empire was amazing. In the sixties, especially, mm-hmm. um, so there was a there was, they were all proud of it. Yeah. Not oh wait, what have we done? It's mm-hmm. oh yeah, we're we're awesome. So there worry. was a there was a part of that in that film, but then actually a part of the ashamed ashamed of it as well, which mm-hmm. is sort of came out with the officers being like, you've got like a nasty feeling when you get went into the officers like a bar. Um, they were all sort of like jeering over him, mm-hmm. and you actually mm-hmm. felt ooh. Which is kind of interesting for a 60s yeah, film. I, I would expect the opposite. The boy, his assistant. Yeah, I would have expected the opposite. Um, yeah. um, what did you think of the film then? Because this was not your first time, but... It's funny. Watching it, I love the first part, the first half, that has a very clear narrative and clear drive. Yes, a problematic one with a white saviour, but fine, if you put on the glasses of it, it's in the 60s, that's what to take then and just roll with it. I loved it. And then the second half... It's much less clear. I felt they lost the plot a bit, right? It was a bit of a mess. The narrative wasn't clear. He was a mess as a person, and the story was a mess as a result. And I didn't enjoy it as much. But thinking about it later, of course, it is a more interesting story. I appreciated more thinking about it in retrospect more than watching it at the time. I have more respect for it now, just yeah. learning what it is we're trying to do. Now, obviously, you and I had spoken about the film at length since then, uh, but um, I feel the same. Uh, I do feel the same that the 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 craftsmanship and the narrative and the storytelling was at its finest in the first half. It was so well crafted. The narrative 
thrust was very strong. It was very clear. And the second half just doesn't quite hold up to the drive of the first half. I think the second half struggles with what the thrust of the narrative is, which is why it gets a little bit muddy as to what's going to happen. And I do think that it's the harder story to tell. The, sure. the, the story of the dissolution of that is much, much more difficult to get across. And it's a much, much trickier thing to write. And it's a very tricky thing to perform and tell. And I think that's where the film struggles the most. Um, and I do think that the conclusion at the very end, while correct and appropriate, wasn't quite complete, which is why I think they were missing that just that note. But that's just personal taste. I don't want to say what the film should have been. Um, I think... The uh, but on a on a performance level, on the visual level, all that stuff, the film was spectacular. I think it's a it's absolutely a must see. I think anybody who's into yeah. cinema should see it. I do think that it needs to be given a bit of a break in the sense that it it was made in the sixties and certain uh, performative things were still acceptable. They're just not acceptable anymore. Uh, of course, there will be people that argue well, it wasn't acceptable then. I think I shouldn't, I, I, I shouldn't have been, but however, I think because it is a respectful portrayal and not a mocking one, um, uh, I think it is uh, just about acceptable. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily change the movie or cut things out because of it. I think as far as the portrayal of Arabs go, I think it is an, an incredibly progressive piece considering its time um, and clearly told from a perspective who loved the culture. You yeah, know, I mean, yeah. T. Lawrence loved the Arabic mm-hmm. culture. And, clearly romanticized it and I think they show that in the film as well that he romanticized that culture very very much what Um, would have been really nice would have been to see it on a movie house screen really because you know television is very limited and I think I I agree don't watch on your phones no 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 exactly you wouldn't even spot the tea on on your phone Um, no it is it is I I have the luxury of having a nice TV at home with a good sound system and that is the very minimum you should do and to appreciate this Mm. film and it is the filmmaking craft of it is and still top tier and and I highly recommend everybody watch it so well thank you very much for joining us I uh, had a great great time just making this very first episode mm. of the Teabag Chinwag um, this was so so much fun I really loved that we tried to replicate at least a little bit mm. what it's like to have Bedu tea I think we all enjoyed the tea right oh, did we enjoy the tea I, I think so it was wonderful I, I, uh, we're gonna try this again for sure um mm. Jane, thank you very much for giving us your insights on the team. This is great. Um, We're going to do this again, right? Brilliant. Thank you. Ed, (laughs) thank you you for coming up with this um, and (laughs) letting me evolve it even more. This is really great. And Ariana, thank you for your insights. This was really, really lovely. Absolutely. We're going to do this again. Thank you very much for listening and for watching if you are. And uh, just tune in for the next episode because the next one will be Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. See you next time.